Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 1st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Henry Kissinger dies at the age of 100. Meta shuts down thousands of China-based accounts allegedly intended to sway voters. Taiwan's president says that a Chinese invasion is unlikely. Brazil mobilizes its military amid a potential Guiana-Venezuela conflict. The U.S. links a Sikh separatist attempted assassination to an Indian official. New Zealand seeks to strengthen its ties with the U.S. Saudi Arabia is selected to host the 2030 World Exposition. A dozen new countries secure the IAEA's approval to build nuclear power plants. The Supreme Court hears arguments over the Security and Exchange Commission's powers. And a U.S. military aircraft crashes off the coast of Japan. Henry Kissinger dies at the age of 100. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Reuters, BBC News, and The Guardian. Dr. Henry Kissinger, the renowned but divisive diplomat at the heart of U.S. foreign policy for decades, died at the age of 100 at his Connecticut home on Wednesday, a statement from his consultancy firm confirmed. Born in Germany in 1923, Kissinger arrived in America with his family in 1938. Once in the U.S., he enlisted in the Army as part of the country's World War II effort in 1943. The same year, he became a naturalized citizen. Due to his German language skills, he climbed the ranks of military intelligence. Once back on U.S. soil, he enrolled at Harvard, earning a master's degree in 1952 and a doctorate in 1954. He joined the university's faculty for the next 17 years, often advising U.S. administrations on foreign policy. In 1968, when Richard Nixon won the presidency, Kissinger was brought on as White House National Security Advisor. Alongside Nixon, Kissinger set out to reduce tensions with the Soviet Union, reviving talks that led to the scaling down of the nuclear arsenals of both superpowers. He also played a key role in thawing relations with China and bringing a ceasefire to the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. After overseeing the withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Vietnam, Kissinger earned the Nobel Peace Prize, which caused controversy. He was awarded the prize alongside North Vietnamese negotiator Le Duc Tho. Several prize committee members stepped down, and Tho refused the award in protest over Kissinger's influence in the secret bombing of neutral Cambodia in 1969. Kissinger survived Nixon's Watergate scandal and served as Secretary of State under President Gerald Ford before leaving the government in 1976. He went on to found a successful geopolitical consulting firm in 1982, remaining central to global politics until his final days. Thanks, Melissa. We have a narrative A on this story from Breitbart. Kissinger can be criticized for many things after decades of establishing the U.S. post-World War II foreign policy, but no one can question that everything he did was done with the best interests of the U.S. in mind. He will be greatly remembered for his many achievements, including the U.S. troop withdrawal from Vietnam and the detente with communist China and the Soviet Union. American public life will miss his wisdom and real politique. Here's Narrative B from the Rolling Stone. Given the carpet bombing of Cambodia, the U.S.'s role in problems in Pakistan, and the green lighting of Indonesia's bloody invasion of East Timor, 
No other official in modern U.S. history deserves the title of war criminal more than Kissinger. Mainstream voices will pay tribute to him as a statesman and a diplomat, but decency commands we remember the many civilians who suffered at his hands. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This time they say there's a 15% chance there will be a U.S.-China war by 2035. Meta shuts down thousands of fake accounts allegedly linked to China. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Forbes, Fortune, and NBC News. Meta on Thursday announced that it removed nearly 4,800 fake Facebook accounts allegedly linked to China that it alleges sought to deepen partisan discord by impersonating Americans and posting about controversial issues such as abortion and health care. According to Meta, the accounts, which it said posed as authentic Americans, didn't post misinformation, but instead copied and pasted posts from prominent politicians, such as Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, and former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California. The alleged network didn't appear to support any political side, but was said to be likely attempting to provoke political polarization in the U.S. According to a Meta spokesperson, the accounts didn't gain much traction. Between its platforms, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, Meta claims to have taken down five Chinese networks this year. Between 2017 and November 2020, the company reported to have only removed two Chinese networks that allegedly focused on the Asia-Pacific region rather than American politics. Various media outlets paid great attention to allegations that Russia attempted to influence the 2016 election, and Russia has been seen as the leading threat of foreign election interference through cyber campaigns. However, China and Iran are becoming increasing adversaries. Liu Penggu, a spokesman for the Chinese embassy in Washington, D.C., said that he was unaware of any social media networks aimed at influencing U.S. politics, and said that some people and institutions have launched one rumor campaign after another against China on social media platforms and spread a tremendous amount of disinformation about China. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from NPR. After faith in U.S. democracy was shaken by Russia's aggressive election interference campaign in 2016, social media companies such as Meta must continue to do their due diligence to snuff out these foreign networks. The rise of social media has come with a mass proliferation of misinformation from both domestic and foreign actors. And while Russia remains the biggest threat, China is emerging which means there must be a greater initiative to combat this cyber assault. And Reuters brings us the establishment critical narrative. The U.S. is always quick to point fingers at others without acknowledging its own shortcomings. While there may very well be malicious foreign actors, there are also undoubtedly domestic ones. Before spreading rumors and panic about foreign election interference, Washington must get its own house in order by eliminating the very real homegrown threats that risk jeopardizing its democracy. It is interesting China countering it being accused of using misinformation by saying people are using misinformation to make it seem like they're spreading misinformation. Yeah, this is these are where uh, it gets real tricky. Yeah, it's getting messy. Taiwan's president says China is too overwhelmed to invade. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, The South China Morning Post and NBC. During an interview at the New York Times Deal Book Summit, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen said China is too overwhelmed to think about invading the island. 
citing its internal economic and financial as well as political challenges, and adding that the international community has made it loud and clear that war is not an option. Tsai also alleged that China is determined to meddle in the self-governing island's upcoming January elections, something she claims Beijing has done since 1996 through the use of military stress and economic coercion, extensive cognitive warfare campaigns, and both tradition and social media platforms. The outgoing president, who is term-limited, noted that instead of hoping China would stop its allegedly coercive tactics, Taiwan should focus on strengthening the resilience of our democracy. Current Vice President Lai Ching-te and his former running mate Xiao Bi Kim, Taiwan's former envoy to the U.S., are leading the presidential race. In response to Tsai's comments, China's defense ministry said the nation would take all necessary measures to firmly safeguard China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Tsai was also asked whether Taiwan's semiconductor industry would be impacted by the shift of some manufacturing to the U.S., to which she said she's pretty confident that the capacity we have now and the importance of our industry cannot be replaced anywhere else. Tsai's comments came as China's Taiwan Affairs Office said, Taiwan independence means war. The DPP pushing this dangerous independence double act will only poison the interests and well-being of compatriots on the island. Thanks, Melissa. We have an anti-China narrative from Taipei Times. President Tsai's comments come not from arrogance, but confidence in the nation's institutions, economic strength, and partnerships with powerful allies. While China makes verbal threats, Taipei is manufacturing world-leading computer chips and building military and economic cooperation with countries around the world, not to mention its growing domestic public support for democracy and deterring Beijing. Here's the pro-China narrative from Global Times. As Taiwan's ruling party pushes the island into the arms of Washington, Beijing feels sorry for the Taiwanese people, whose tax dollars are being used to buy U.S. weapons and thus instigate a war. U.S. policy toward Taipei isn't one of compassion, but rather of using the island as a piggy bank for its military machine. This dangerous policy will only worsen if the ruling DPP party wins again in 2024. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 28% chance that China will launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan before the year 2030. Is it a good strategy to announce that, like, oh, I think our enemies are too busy to fight us right now? I I would say I probably, in the spirit of the trolley problem, I would probably leave well enough alone and not say anything so that it's not my personal fault if they attack us. Yeah. Uh, That would be my, that would be my, like, personal public figure cop-out strategy. I didn't say they were going to do this. I didn't do anything. So don't blame me. Yeah. I imagine it was not done flippantly, though. I think it was, I mean, this is a chess match, a long-running chess match. Yeah, for sure. Brazil mobilizes its military amid a potential Guiana-Venezuela conflict. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Folha de São Paulo, Defense Blog, Associated Press, France 24, and Axios. The Brazilian Defense Ministry announced on Wednesday that the country has deployed additional military resources to its northern border, intensifying defensive actions amid mounting tensions between Guyana and Venezuela over the long-disputed oil-rich Essequibo region, which makes up two-thirds of Guyana. Local news outlet Folha de São Paulo reported, citing military sources, 
that there is no alert for a major mobilization, likely indicating that this measure is intended to serve as a warning to both sides against further escalation. This comes as speculations about an imminent military move by Venezuela against Guyana, based on alleged Brazilian intelligence reports, raised concerns about regional stability and the geopolitical landscape in South America. Venezuela is set to hold a referendum on Sunday, asking voters whether they reject, by all means, the 1899 arbitral decision that declared the area belonged to the then British colony, and whether they support a 1966 agreement that effectively nullified the arbitration as the only valid legal instrument to reach a solution. Though the International Court of Justice is expected to rule on Friday on Guyana's request for an injunction to halt the referendum on claims that it would violate international law, Venezuelan officials say the vote will be held anyway, claiming the court has no jurisdiction. This week, U.S. officials visited Guyana to discuss their bilateral military partnership. The territorial dispute has escalated over the past decade following two major oil discoveries that made Guyana's reserves greater than those of Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates. While Guyana has the world's biggest reserves of crude per capita, Venezuela sits on the largest proven reserves overall. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with an establishment critical narrative from Ultimus Noticias. The free and democratic referendum on Essequibo is no threat, but rather a massive exercise of sovereignty and defense of the Venezuelan territory and legitimate rights that will force the happy colony of Guyana back to the negotiating table. The stolen, oil-rich Essequibo region has long had its resources exploited by the U.S., which negotiates oil and gas deals as if they were its own. It's about time for this to end. And America's Quarterly brings us the pro-establishment narrative. It's outrageous that Venezuela has arrogated to itself the right to hold a referendum to annex a territory awarded to the then-British territory, Guyana, in 1899, despite the 1966 Geneva Agreement stressing that it's up to the UN Secretary General to choose how to settle the territorial dispute related to Essequibo. Given that the matter has already been referred to the ICJ, Caracas is clearly seeking to usurp the court's jurisdiction. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 10% chance that Venezuela will invade Guyana before 2024. The U.S. links a Sikh separatist's attempted assassination to an Indian official. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, France 24, CBS, The Economic Times, and The Times of India. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan have charged Indian national Nikhil Gupta with plotting to assassinate a Sikh separatist activist on U.S. soil at the behest of an Indian government official, the U.S. Department of Justice announced on Wednesday. According to court documents, the Indian government operative, referred to only as CC-1, described himself as a senior field officer with responsibilities in security management and intelligence and allegedly recruited Gupta to orchestrate the ultimately unsuccessful assassination earlier this year. Directed by the Indian official, Gupta and another undisclosed associate attempted to hire a hitman who turned out to be an undercover federal agent to kill the unnamed New York resident. Described by prosecutors as an advocate of a sovereign Sikh state in India, Gupta was arrested by Czech authorities over the summer pending extradition and is charged with two counts of murder for hire and conspiracy to commit murder for hire. The charges come after a senior Biden administration official last week claimed that the U.S. law enforcement had foiled a plot to kill Sikh separatist activist Gurpatwant Singh Panun. 
issued a warning to India over concerns the government in New Delhi was involved. India's External Affairs Ministry responded to Gupta's indictment on Thursday, stating that the allegations are a matter of concern and contrary to government policy, but declined to comment further. Thanks, Melissa. We have Narrative A from The Washington Post. The charges against Gupta are a dramatic development, fueling concerns that the trail of the plot to assassinate a U.S. and Canadian citizen on U.S. soil might lead to New Delhi. Not only that, the charges also suggest a link between the foiled killing in the U.S. and the murder of the Sikh leader in Canada. To protect its reputation, New Delhi must do everything possible to bring those responsible to justice. Washington, for its part, must show that the lives of U.S. citizens take precedence over its desire to deepen strategic ties with India. Here's Narrative B from the Hindu. The allegations made in the indictment are serious, but India appreciates that the U.S. has been discreet in voicing its concerns, unlike Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who openly accused New Delhi of being behind the killing of a Sikh activist in Canada without providing any evidence. The Sikh separatist Panun is a dangerous agitator who was labeled a terrorist by New Delhi and has undoubtedly made many enemies. India is taking the matter seriously and is interested in solving the obscure issue for national security reasons alone. And Metaculus strikes again with another nerd narrative predicting a 3% chance that India will request that another Canadian diplomat be recalled before the year 2024. I was in a movie once. Uh, as a featured actor, the whole crew uh, was from South East India. And uh, yeah. I played the stepmother. The whole thing was, uh, it's called Forced Orphans. You can check it out on Amazon Prime. All right. Uh, I haven't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you exist. <laughs> I have not actually seen it uh, because it's not very good. <laughs> I, just, mm. I remember reading like, the, I mean, I remember watching the first five minutes and I was like, oh my God, this is so, yeah. so over the top. I think I did some pretty good dramatic acting. I, I think I should actually stomach to watch it. As <laughs> but, usual, my question in any kind of showbiz set thing, what was the craft services like? Oh, it was great. It was Indian food. Yeah. It was the best. According to their foreign minister, New Zealand seeks to strengthen U.S. ties. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Radio New Zealand, One News, CGTN, South China Morning Post, and You're Active. During a speech at the United States Business Summit in Auckland on Thursday, New Zealand Foreign Minister Winston Peters said that the Asia-Pacific country held a crucial role in promoting shared values alongside the U.S. Peters said that both countries shared a special connection founded upon democratic values and continued that New Zealand sought to strengthen engagement with the U.S. on strategic and security challenges. Peters' speech was his first since being appointed foreign minister. Peters has also been appointed as New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and previously held the Office of Foreign Minister from 2017 to 2020. Peters accused New Zealand of being part of a recent foreign affairs vacuum, with newly elected Prime Minister Christopher Luxon also claiming the country had been myopic and internally focused. The news comes after Chinese Premier Li Kang sent his congratulations to Luxon on Monday, calling the two important cooperative partners and stating that Beijing looked forward to working with the country's new government. In 2018, Peters introduced a Pacific Reset policy, which included greater aid in the region as well as strengthening ties with the U.S. 
At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, Peters called for Taiwan's involvement in the WHO and criticized China's ambassador to New Zealand following its embassy's statement to Auckland on the One China policy. This week, New Zealand also finalized a new trade deal with the EU, expected to become effective in 2024, with two-way trade consequently estimated to grow by 30% in the next decade. The Diplomat starts us off with a pro-establishment narrative. New Zealand must reaffirm its ties with the United States to strengthen the union of liberal democracy worldwide and ensure global security. New Zealand is already a member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Group and should heavily consider becoming part of AUKUS's second stage. While a reaction from China is inevitable, Auckland must expand its limited foreign policy beyond a dependency on its Australian neighbor. And the pro-China narrative comes from China Daily. Luxon's new coalition government cannot magically restore the country's economy, and so the prime minister would be wise to keep the ideologically driven, pro-U.S. wing of the government in check with China remaining New Zealand's dominant trading partner. There is hope there will be continuity. There is hope there will be continuity in Auckland's foreign policy, although the country's three-party coalition may prove to be unpredictable. And there's another nerd narrative here from Metaculus saying there's an 18% chance that China's GDP will overtake the U.S. before 2030. Riyadh is selected to host the World Expo of 2030. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Politico, France 24, and The Washington Times. A vote conducted by the Paris-based Bureau International des Expositions, BIE, has seen Saudi Arabia beat its opponents by a landslide to host the 2030 World Exposition in its capital, Riyadh. The kingdom intends to host the event between October 2030 and March 2031. Riyadh won the bid with 119 or 72 percent of the 165 votes, ahead of the South Korean port city of Busan with 29 votes or 18 percent, followed by the Italian capital Rome with 17 votes at 10 percent. Riyadh's bid was officially backed by French President Emmanuel Macron and subject to criticism from some activists over human rights concerns. Saudi Arabia's clear win made it the first time in 20 years that a candidate was awarded the World Expo in the first round of voting. Following the ballot, Italy alleged that Riyadh had offered countries economic incentives in return for their vote. After the ballot, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan said the vote was an expression of the trust that the international community has in Riyadh. The Expo 2030 reflects Riyadh's vision of a shared pathway to prosperity for all of the countries of the world, he added. Securing the ability to host the World Fair in 2030 coincides with the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's agenda to diversify the country economically and culturally through its Vision 2030 program. Additionally, Saudi Arabia will host the 2034 Football World Cup, among other sporting events. The month-long event, first held in London in 1851, will likely attract millions of visitors. The World Expo has often helped publicize groundbreaking inventions such as the light bulb and iconic buildings like Paris's Eiffel Tower. Thanks, Melissa. CIO brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Riyadh's successful bid to host the World Expo 2030 is cause for celebration. By showcasing the latest technological marvels to international tourists and officials, 
Saudi Arabia will have the opportunity to build closer ties with Western nations and firm up its reputation as a key player in terms of innovation and diplomacy for years to come. The establishment critical narrative comes from Don. Allowing Saudi Arabia to host the World Expo 2030 is a huge mistake with international implications. This outcome signals that the BIE holds no regard for human rights. It is failing to take a stand against a morally corrupt regime. Saudi Arabia is an inappropriate backdrop to a meeting centered on global solutions to today's global challenges. I feel like probably for both of us, the biggest World's Fair uh, impact on our lives is the Seattle one with the whole Seattle Center and the Space Needle and all that, of right? Of course. The monorail. Don't forget monorail, the monorail. Monorail, of course. Yep. And then the what's now a uh, food court and basically an improv practice facility, that Expo Center. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, what? Oh, at the Seattle Center. Yeah, that the, the yes. building that's like a food court now, and just all those open rooms that all, the only thing oh, they're yeah. ever used for is people renting them out for improv practice, right? Yeah, and auditions, auditions and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. it, it yeah. could use a little update. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of perfect though for the sad auditions. Like I don't oh, know. Totally. You don't want to make it too nice. You know, you kind of want a haunted hallway feel. That's that's the plan. For sure. And there's something about those rooms where the floors can never be clean. It doesn't matter how many times you sweep and mop. Yeah. It's a dirty there's floor. So many crushed dreams just ingrained into the lacquer. They just can't get it out. That must yeah. be it. Yeah. <laughs> those are really hard to remove. More countries get the IAEA's nod to build nuclear power plants. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Arise News, Bloomberg, Reuters, Our World in Data, and the World Nuclear Association. About a dozen new countries could begin producing electricity from nuclear power sources within a few years, the International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Raphael Grassi said at the World Nuclear Exhibition in Paris on Tuesday. According to the IAEA, the number of nuclear reactors in the world must double to achieve the Paris Climate Agreement's targets. Gracia said that 10 countries, including Nigeria, have already entered the decision phase to build nuclear power plants. Around 30 countries, including Bangladesh, Egypt, Poland, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, are considering, planning, or starting nuclear power programs as their demand for electricity is reportedly set to match that of Europe, North America, and Japan. This comes as nuclear energy projects have regained ground in Europe and China after decades passed without the construction of new plants in response to growing calls for low-carbon power generation to fight climate change. On Wednesday, the Swedish parliament approved legislation that paves the way for nuclear energy expansion in the country by scrapping the existing cap of 10 nuclear reactors and allowing their construction at sites where the current plants aren't operational. In 2022, about 9% of the world's primary electricity production came from nuclear power, with France, the U.S., China, Russia, and Canada leading the pack in generating relatively large amounts of nuclear power. Here's a pro-establishment narrative from NPR Online News. Concerns about climate change, national security, and unreliable electrical grids have pushed the world to recognize that nuclear power has long been wrongfully stigmatized, especially in popular culture. Nuclear power is a zero-carbon, reliable energy source far safer than other alternatives, such as coal and natural gas, in terms of deaths from accidents and pollution. And the nation brings us the establishment critical narrative. 
Though it would be easy to genuinely believe the revival of nuclear energy will solve ongoing crises, including the climate breakdown, closer scrutiny shows an opposing reality. As nuclear reactors risk being weaponized, nuclear power is less reliable and safe than its advocates claim. The world should instead be investing in weather-based renewable energy. Here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous community saying there's a 50% chance that at least 8.3% of global primary energy consumption will be produced by nuclear power in 2040. At least they're nuclear power plants and not nuclear weapons. I thought Uh, that's where we were going with that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you got to literally need to pick your poison. If If climate change truly is the be-all, end-all existential threat, then I suppose you'd be better off going with nuclear power. But if getting exploded in a nuclear meltdown is a be-all, end-all threat, then maybe go with coal or something. But, uh, you know, yeah. I guess they're I mean, both pretty bad. Like they are really safe until they are absolutely not They're safe. 100% safe until they're not. Well, no yeah. question in my mind. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> The Supreme Court hears arguments over Security and Exchange Commission's powers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, CNN, NBC, and USA Today. On Wednesday, the U.S. Supreme Court heard more than two hours of arguments in the case of Security and Exchange Commission versus Jarkasi, which is an appeal by the Biden administration of a lower court's ruling that prohibited the SEC from imposing financial penalties on hedge fund manager George R. Jarkasi. Jarkasi's suit, which many conservative and business groups backed, challenged the legality of the SEC's punishments after it fined him and barred him from the industry after finding he committed securities fraud. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Jarkasi on three constitutional claims. It ruled that some SEC proceedings violate Seventh Amendment rights to a civil jury, that Congress improperly delegated legislative power to the SEC, and that rules related to the removal of SEC administrative law judges limited a president's ability to replace them in violation of the separation of powers. Much of the arguments on Wednesday centered on the Seventh Amendment issue, with Principal Deputy Solicitor General Brian Fletcher arguing Congress had not violated the Constitution because it is allowed to empower an agency to impose civil penalties to enforce federal law. However, Justice Samuel Alito was among the conservative justices who pushed against the administration's case, arguing that the SEC's ability to decide which cases can go to court is a pretty patent evasion of the Seventh Amendment. Justice Elena Kagan, who's part of the three-justice liberal minority, voiced sympathy for the administration's argument, by pointing out Congress has had to bestow more powers on the SEC because of an increase in economic calamities and the defrauding of investors. Thanks, Melissa. We have a left narrative spin on this story coming from Vox. Conservative judges have never seemed concerned about jury trials when it comes to workers seeking to avoid private arbitration with their corporate employers. This is just an attempt by conservatives to dismantle the agencies policing wealthy citizens who are committing misdeeds. Luckily, for those who believe in equal justice, the right-leaning justices seemed unprepared to completely obliterate the agencies at this time. The Wall Street Journal brings us a right narrative. Agencies like the SEC have grown too powerful, 
And agencies' in-house judges are nothing more than overprotected political cronies doing the left's bidding. It's time to right the wrong of denying would-be SEC violators a jury trial and hopefully move on to reining in other overgrown government agencies after this case is decided. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 39% chance that the Supreme Court will change size by the year 2050. You know what I was thinking? Do, um, like your local television news anchors, do they do that in one take? How many? I think they, well, it's live, right? They, they never mess up. I know. I think, I mean, isn't that the job to not, to not mess up? And the other thing about uh, local news people, I think they all, most of them like do their own hair and makeup and wardrobe and stuff. I mean, it's, it's if you're Katie oh, Couric, wow. I think they got you, but I don't think, especially if you're coming in early in the morning, I think you're doing a lot of your own hair and stuff, so, right. which is a lot to ask. That is a lot early in the morning. These people are driven. But yeah. so, th- I mean, it must not be a cold read then. Do they get a couple times to run it through? No, the, the news is live. It's, it's, you're just, it's, 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 it's on TV. I mean, you have a teleprompter that's, uh, but yeah, I know. I think, I think that's the job. And I wonder, you know, pulling the curtain back a little bit, everybody, you know, we're recording this and we mess up all the time and then we, you know, redo it all the time. I wonder (laughs) if we knew that it was live though. How many times do you, when you're doing live performance, stumble over your words and say the wrong thing? Yeah, not, not that often. You just often. kind of figure it out. And then if you say the wrong thing, then you make it the right thing. Yeah. You just kind of keep going. So I, I, I've wondered that too, because in the, you know, various times I've thought about what if we were live streaming this thing, that at least we wouldn't have to edit it. Um, <laughs> a U.S. military aircraft crashes off Japan's coast. Here are the facts on our final story is agreed upon by Reuters, NBC News, CNN, CBS, and the Associated Press. A U.S. military Osprey aircraft with eight people on board crashed into the sea off western Japan on Wednesday, killing at least one crew member. The Japanese Coast Guard confirmed it had found the wreckage of the tilt rotor V-22 Osprey and the deceased's remains near Yakushima Island. Fishing boats reportedly found three people, but their conditions are unclear. According to the Air Force Special Operations Command, the CV-22B Osprey was involved in a mishap while performing a routine training mission off the shore of Yakushima Island. Deployed at the Yokota Air Base and assigned to the 353rd Special Operations Wing, the aircraft reportedly took off from the U.S. Marine Corps Air Station Iwakuni and crashed on its way to Kadena Air Base. While the cause of the crash is still being investigated, a search and rescue operation is underway to find the missing personnel. Wednesday's crash comes after three U.S. Marines crashed their MV-22B Osprey during a multinational military exercise in Australia in August. Thanks for the facts, Scott. Here's the establishment critical narrative from Reuters. The U.S. military continues to deploy Ospreys despite several high-profile deadly crashes in recent years and a history of mechanical and operational issues. Japan must stop all Ospreys operating in its territory until the U.S. can ensure the hybrid aircraft is safe to fly. And the journal Space brings us a pro-establishment narrative. The V-22, which can take off and land like a helicopter but can rotate its propellers forward and cruise much faster like a plane, expands the operational range of military units exponentially. Though it's often termed the most controversial U.S. military aircraft, the Osprey isn't even close to the most lethal to fly. 
And the nerds have the final word from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 25% chance that a U.S. aircraft carrier will be destroyed in combat before 2050. The Osprey is that plane. It's like half helicopter, half airplane. It's like a transformer. It's pretty, oh, yeah. pretty, pretty sick looking. I, can I mean, see. I was going to say it's, it might have its problems, but yeah, uh, it's but pretty cool. Aesthetically, looking. it looks pretty cool. It looks like a, looks like a really nice toy for a little, little, little kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like a mini version of that, right? Oh, well, ideal. Yeah, it'd be a thing. little big to have a, a full-size military aircraft in the living room. <laughs> Depends but, on what uh, part of the suburbs you live in. If you stub your toe on that baby, wow. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, December 1st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our apps on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.